Hello, and welcome to Northwest Philly Neighbors. I'm Rick Moore, and today we'll hear stories recorded live at the Mount Airy Village Fair. Every booth at the fair has some kind of interactive experience, and at our podcast booth, we invited people to sit down and tell a story. Twelve people did, ages 8 to 73. We'll hear about climbing a Vermont waterfall, removing a statewide loophole that promoted segregation, serving breakfast using a domino run, finding unexpected love in middle age, and even live Harry Potter voices. Some people used our story ideas, like the hardest thing I've faced and overcome, or I'm proud to have created, and some just launched into their stories, like how chronic pain opened up a new career, making a giant mural showing the history of Germantown, or adventures with the Australian Lily Pilly, Big thanks to my booth partners. They talked to fairgoers while I was recording stories, and you might hear a bit of those conversations in the background. Enjoy the fair. My name is Mike Gross. I live in Mount Airy. I grew up in New Jersey, and One of the most interesting things that I did in my work life was when I worked as a community organizer. Yeah. We worked on an affordable housing issue called Regional Contribution Agreements. Hmm. And it was a loophole in the state's affordable housing law that allowed rich towns to pay poor towns to take their affordable housing obligation. So it added to the concentration of poverty and racial and economic segregation. For a few years, when I was with this organization, we built up the political support in the state legislature to get that loophole abolished. Wow. Those two years, 2006, 2008, the legislation was passed in 2008. So those two years I was working on it. And then we ended up spending a decent portion of the next five or six years defending that victory. Although it was much, it's always much easier to defend a victory. You're on top of the hill, so to speak, defending something as opposed to trying to get up the hill and uh, take it. <laughs> but, um, but that was an extraordinary thing to be a part of. Was there a key moment when everything changed or when it, the tide really shifted? It's a great campaign. question. You know, the way we worked on that campaign was by trying to secure the support of state legislators in different districts. New Jersey has like 40 state legislative districts. So we would focus on one little section of the state or maybe several at the same time, but ones where we felt like uh, we could build the support uh, for this. We organized public meetings, sometimes 100 people, sometimes 300 people, and we would twist these legislators' arms to get them to publicly come out and say that they were on board with us. Kind of one by one. It was one by one, and maybe there's the straw that broke the camel's back. So we built up so much support that uh, it tipped, exactly. We were able to reach a tipping point. It was amazing, amazing thing to be part of. And I remember the, my mentor at the time, who I worked with, said, you're going to remember this for the rest of your life. You know, because substantial victories like that are far and few between. And it's true. I still remember it. I'm quite proud of it. You and, really helped uh, make it happen. Yeah, it was an exciting thing to be a part of. So, yeah. Mike, thanks so much for your story. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for asking. Hi, my name is Terry List, and I live over uh, near Germantown Avenue on Mount Airy. 
I've been here for 10 years, but this story is not really about me. It's about me and a plant, okay. a particular type of plant that came in my life in San Francisco in 1989. I was walking around the streets. San Francisco is semi-tropical, doesn't really freeze, and there's all kinds of unusual things there. You can reach up and pick strange looking fruits and so forth. So I got a collection of things. And because it's not really actually bad to bring things back from San Francisco, they don't like you taking things into California. But I took this stuff to Philadelphia knowing pretty damn well it wasn't going to make it outside in the winter. I put it in a pot and half a year later something came up and I had no idea what I put in that pot. Fast forward 10 years, the thing has grown and it is producing flowers. The flowers turn to fruit and I think it's guava. So I think it's a red guava, catalanium. Fast forward seven years after that, I've looked more intensively at it. I actually did break apart one of the seeds inside there and found that it had multiple embryos. That's not a guava. That is from Australia. It's the Australian magenta lily pilly, L-I-L-L-Y-P-I-L-L-Y. And if anybody contacts me, I will give them a baby lily pilly, which can be grown as a bonsai houseplant. I have dozens of them. The fruits are edible. They can be dried. The lily pilly grows in the forest in the southern neotropical coast of Australia. And it has a very, very limited genetic footprint. And it is suspected that the Aborigines were responsible for placing it around. Because even though it's legal, and available as a horticultural plant for your garden, for your yard, in both Florida and California, nobody has one bit of worry that it's gonna be invasive. It just can't do it. You have to be there. It's like a chihuahua. You've got to be there at birth and take care of what's next. And so it's a wonderful plant. It produces fruits and I'm advertising it. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, you can have a baby plant. Where should they email you? It's genji.list at gmail.com. G-E-N-J-I dot L-I-S-T. Write to me and I'll hook you up. So anyway, thank you everybody for listening. And have a good day. Bye. Hi, I'm Evan. I make domino runs. What's a domino run? Well... It's where you set up dominoes, and then one hits into the next, hits into the next, and you can make all kinds of cool tricks. Oh yeah, like what's a trick you can do? Like, well, you can make domino towers, and there are special dominoes for setting up and knocking down. What's one that you made that you thought was really cool? What did it do? Well, there was one that makes breakfast for you. It makes breakfast for you? Yeah. What did it serve for breakfast? A sandwich, an orange, and a prune. Really? How could dominoes serve breakfast? So they hit the orange rolling down a ramp onto the plate. Okay. They hit a twain down a ramp with a prune on it, and it stops so suddenly that the prune falls off onto the plate. Yeah. And also it hits the top piece of bread onto the bottom piece. For a sandwich? Yeah. Oh my gosh. You didn't take a video of this or anything. I did. Really? Actually, I have a YouTube channel. What's it called? Domino All E C. Weck. Domino Weck. Yeah. 
so people could just go there and yeah. see the breakfast video? Uh-huh. And a bunch of other videos I made. Pretty cool. Well, thanks so much for your story. My name is Joanne Fleischer. I'm originally from Abington, Pennsylvania. I live right across the street from where this interview is oh, taking nice. place. Okay. I think I'm going to talk about the hardest thing I've faced and overcome was. I thought that the hardest thing I'd ever faced was in my early 30s. I was married and living a very average life in the suburbs with my husband and two children, young children. And probably as a result of being involved in the women's health movement, I began to question my sexuality. I met a woman who was an out lesbian and had a brief affair with her and realized, oh my gosh, that's what I think has been missing from my life. And it was a horrendous time for me because I cared about my husband and I was worried about breaking up the family, possibly. And I spent about a year trying to figure out what to do. And I just decided that there was no way for me to really explore my sexuality within the context of a marriage. So I did leave my marriage, and at the time I thought this is the hardest decision I would ever have to face. I thought it was the hardest time I would ever have to face. But then I found out that life dishes out difficult times often. Generously. Yes, generously. And I met the woman that I had a 31-year relationship with. I had a really very happy relationship and co-parented with my husband and brought up the kids that way. And then my partner died of cancer. She was only 57. Um, I was in my 60s. And there I was facing probably the next most tragic period of time of my life in terms of how to get past that. I had always, always been partnered and I didn't know what it felt like to be alone. It took me six or seven years to recover where I felt myself again because I really felt like I lost a huge part of myself. So something I've never talked about. In my late 60s, I started going online and dating. And it is really bizarre. I've met many, many different women and I realize how challenging it is. This is the way people meet people these days, but it's a bizarre way to meet people. <laughs> so I'm not going to go into that in great detail, but this is the challenge of my life now. Um, however, I am happy to say that I have reached a place of happiness by myself. I think for a long time, I didn't imagine happiness could exist without a partner. And that's the end of my story. Thank you so much, Joanne. <laughs> yeah. Your story is my mom's story. Really? Without the personals. She's a little older. Uh-huh. Or was. She died a few years ago. But wow. when I went to college was when she branched oh, off. Okay. And she had a partner for many, many years. Wow. How, how, so how old was she when she left? Late 40s. Wow. Isn't yeah. that something? Yeah. And her partner died of cancer. And she struggled with connection with people. And she ended up moving to a co-housing community. 
that's what this is. Yeah. I mean, it's not really co-housing, yeah. but it's ended up being like that. It's, it feels like a community there. Oh my God, yes. I was shocked. Uh-huh. Because it's small, and everybody tends to be around the same age. I don't feel alone at all. Every time I have a question, there's somebody there to ask, yeah. you know? How was it for you? Do you mind my asking? It took a while to get used to. I mean, any divorce, you know, yeah, is, yeah, well, is hard that yeah. way. But, you know, getting to know her partner, who was just the best, you know, that kind of dispelled mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, my partner helped raise my kids, and they were only seven and nine, and it makes a big difference. Yes. Because they just felt it was natural. Yes. You know, like they were young enough that it, it, it didn't feel... I think it's harder for somebody who's a teenager. Yeah. You know. My name is Nathan Long. I live in Germantown, okay. and I grew up in uh, actually in a log cabin in rural Maryland, okay. uh, down a dirt road. Well, that would um, be an interesting story right there. Yeah, yeah. The stream would freeze over, and we'd have to chop through it to get water and pour it in a trash can on the second floor of the cabin, so we'd have running water on the first floor. And uh, sometimes we'd sled down our horse hay and our groceries because the whole road would be too full of snow to get down. A fun story about the Mount Airy Fair. A long time ago, the former manager of the co-op, Glenn, anybody who knows him is just a wild guy. And we were down by the pet ceremony. And he said, you know, do you have a pet? And I was like, no. And I said, do you? And he goes, no. And he goes, well, I'll be your pet. So <laughs> we found a leash and he got down on all four fours <laughs> and he walked across the stage. and Everybody loved it. But he didn't win, unfortunately. That's okay. my little story. Well, thanks for your story. Yeah. My name is Leaf, and my story is about when I first got my puppy. So we were driving back from a farm, and we just pulled in to this Amish house. Me and my brother thought we were going to go to Wawa or something. Then we pulled into this Amish house, and then we saw all these puppies running around everywhere, and then we just decided to get him. Wow. And then we just drove home. What's it like having a little puppy? Really, really fun. Yeah. Does he behave himself or does he run all over the place and break things? Pretty much both. Both. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite thing about him? He always loves to lick you. Lick you? Oh, where does he lick you? Always on the face. The face. What's that like for you? Really, really fun. Oh, yeah, you like it? He's already lost that one, too. Okay. Yeah. Oh, thanks. And what's your full name, Leaf? Um, Leaf Anson Taylor. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for your story. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Jen Sheffield, and I live in Germantown in Philadelphia, and I grew up in Haddonfield, New Jersey. The day of my bat mitzvah, I was given a little diary book, and I said, I will write in this every day. And then I started doing that and actually writing in it every day. So I have entries where I say, I have written in this every day for 17 days. <laughs> and then I start counting months. And then I have basically been keeping it since then. I miss days every so often by completely forgetting. And that is about maybe once a year. It's been this very interesting record of my life that now is more than 70 volumes. <laughs> and when you look back on it, are there things that surprise you? Yes. For a while, I would read back so often that I would sort of know what was in it. Now that a lot more time has passed, looking back brings some interesting surprises. I just looked back 
to that summer when I was 13 yesterday because a writer from the show Doctor Who had died and I met him one time when I was in England. He gave me a book, which book, and I was trying to remember. So I was like, I will go look it up. So I went back and looked it up and I read through my whole trip to England <laughs> and it included that day. It was interesting because it didn't say which book it was. Um, but it did say that he had autographed it, which means that I can actually look through the books that I have that were Doctor Who novelizations and see which one it is. Sometimes looking back will remind me of things that I already remember, and sometimes looking back will remind me of things I've entirely forgotten. Nice. And do you imagine that you will continue? I do. It's sort of become the thing I must do. There, occasionally people have said, but what if you want to stop? To which I say, well, then I'll stop. So far, I have not wanted to stop. A lot of times it turns out that, you know, the living of things takes the time. And so the more there is to write about, the less writing there is about it. I used to write whole conversations down and dreams and things. And I don't do that nearly as much. Well, Jen, thanks very much for your story. You're welcome. Thank you very much. My name is Andrew Kirkpatrick. I live in Germantown, section of Philadelphia. I'm originally from New Cumberland, Pennsylvania, although both my parents are Philadelphia natives, so coming back to Philly was just returning and closing the circle. My unusual talent is that I do all sorts of voices, particularly when I read Harry Potter to my daughter. Um, <laughs> I do it at the drop of a hat at home, but to do it on command... <laughs> I'll start off with Hermione because she has a very distinct way of speaking. It's a lot of pronunciation at the beginning of the words. Right, Harry? Oi, that's right, Hermione. I need to go to Quidditch practice now. I hope I don't run into Voldemort along the way. Harry Potter! Harry Potter! Now, Harry, you must learn defense against the dark arts. It's Ramus. Lupin. <laughs> Much easier to do this with a book in front of myself. Oi, Harry, isn't that right? Hagrid. Oi. That's right. Hagrid, did you see... Oh, there's Professor Snape. He's coming down the walk. Harry Potter, what are you doing outside of class? Your potions are horrible. You're going to fail. Don't you talk that way to him, Snape. I am the head of house. Harry Potter will go far in life. Oi, that's right. He's learned his charms very well indeed. Who's that? Professor Flitwick. Now what about his friend, the boy? Oi, blimey, Harry. Hermione's on it again. She won't leave the library. I can't get her to come out. Harry, I need to talk to you in the fireplace. I need to come see you. Serious, I don't want you to get hurt. You must stay at Grimwald Place. Harry, this is of the utmost importance. Ramus has told me all about what Snape is doing. I'm going to come to Hogwarts right away. No, you can't. I don't want you to go back to Azkaban. Harry, it's okay. I don't care. James and I, we do whatever it takes. Who's that? Sirius Black. Andrew, what a talent. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks It'd be so much. easier to just read a chapter. <laughs> uh, my name's Walt Dater. Some people know me as Wally. I grew up in North Philly, moved to Germantown, was astounded by the trees and the Wissahickon. 
I worked for Weaver's Wife for 34 years. I have a daughter, 27, and another son who's twice her age, almost, who is a prominent muralist and has one at Wayne and Chelton. It's a historic perspective of Germantown from early days on up. I'm quite proud of that. And what would we see if we were looking at the mural? Different buildings, department stores, up to the modern times. There are some people in it. One of it was a saxophone player from Sun Ra, who's now the band leader. And interestingly enough, my son was up on the scaffold painting. He walked out of the market that's right adjoining it. He said, that's me. <laughs> so uh, he's made his mark in the city. It's different murals all over the place. One of the nice things about him, he likes to do murals from a historic perspective, calling in the community and letting them know their past. You know, he brings people together. Before the installation was done, one of the events at the annual block party at Germantown Avenue, he set up a table for people to paint. It's like paint by number. I was there and I, you know, I did some of it. So I'm up on that. I'm part of that. Oh, Molly, thanks for your story. All right, thank you. My name is Mila Shane. I have a story about a waterfall. Okay. I was on a family trip to Vermont. We were like in the middle of the no nowhere. Mom stopped the car and we got out. We put on our bathing suits. We went down the trail for only like 20 feet and then we got to a big waterfall. Oh, right by the road. There were a couple other people there and there was a big pool at the bottom and then there was a waterfall like about 30 feet and there was a shallow pool at the top. Some of the other people who were there said that the shallow pool at the top was really, really, really nice. So we climbed up a bunch of rocks. There were little tiny pools on the rocks so it was hard to climb because everything was so slippery and I had to jump five times. Then we reached the pool at the top and I put my foot in and the water was freezing. I went all the way in and it was still freezing, but then I got used to it and I climbed up on a rock and then Aaron climbed up on one of the bigger rocks and he jumped in and then mom sat down in a mini waterfall. It was like three feet high and she said she was getting a foot massage and then Aaron helped me climb across the mini waterfall because it was really strong. And then I went onto the big rock and then I jumped. And then it started to feel really cold again. So I got out. Okay. Okay. Well, Mila, thanks so much for your story. You're welcome. My name's Keith Murphy, and I live in Brattleboro, Vermont now. I've been there for about 25 years, but I actually grew up in Newfoundland on the east coast of Canada. A big part of the work that I do is as a folk singer. Yeah. And I was just thinking about all the different kinds of sources that I've had for songs over the years, including where I grew up. But in fact, I have this very strong memory of a Pete Seeger album, of a live concert that he did. Yeah. And it was just him doing his thing, he just singing solo. And I just remember as a kid, there was just something so powerful about that sound of this one guy, this singing storyteller, being up on stage with his banjo or his guitar. 
And he had such amazing clarity in his singing. He had a beautiful voice, but had this ability to convey a message or a story. And of course, he sang like a whole range of things, political things, but also like a lot of traditional songs. And he sang a version of this song um, that I've over the years learned different versions of, but I still remember Pete Seeger's version of The Golden Vanity. Yeah. So I thought I could sing them. Great. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> so this was more or less Pete's version as I remember it. Yeah. Oh, there was a lofty ship and she put out to sea. And the name of that ship was The Golden Vanity. And she sailed upon the low and lonesome low. Yes, she sailed upon the lonesome sea. Well, we had not been out but two weeks or three when we were overtaken by a Turkish rivoli. As we sailed upon the low and lonesome low, as we sailed upon the lonesome sea. And then up spoke our little cabin boy, saying, what would you give me if I would them destroy? If I sink him in the low and lonesome low, if I sink him in the lonesome sea. To him who them destroys, our captain then replied, five thousand pounds and my daughter for his bride. If he sinks him in the low and lonesome low, if he sinks him in the lonesome sea. Well, the boy smote his breast and down jumped he, and he swum till he come to that Turkish rivoli. As she sailed upon the low and lonesome low, as she sailed upon the lonesome sea. Well, he had a little tool that was made for the use, and he bore nine holes in her hull all at once. And he sank her in the low and lonesome low. As he sank her in the lonesome sea. Then he swum back to his ship and he beat upon the side, saying, Captain, pick me up, for I'm weary with the tide. And I'm sinking in the low and lonesome low. Yes, I'm sinking in the lonesome sea. No, I will not pick you up, the captain then replied. I'll shoot you, I'll drown you, I'll sink you in the tide. Yes, I'll sink you in the low and lonesome low. Yes, I'll sink you in the lonesome sea. If it was not for the love that I bear for your men, I would do unto you as I did unto them. I'd sink you in the low and lonesome low. Yes, I'd sink you in the lonesome sea. Then the boy bowed his head and down sunk he, and he swum till he come to the bottom of the sea. Now he lies upon the low and lonesome low. Yes, he lies upon the lonesome sea. Nice. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about Pete Seeger recently because I was at the Philly Folk Festival, and what was so amazing about him was he really connected with the audience. 
in the material that he chose, in the way that he put it across, in the way that he got everybody to sing with him, right. like that was a huge part of his goal, was to bring people together in all of those ways. That's right. And I find that mostly missing today when I hear people. I mean, everybody does it to some extent, but I was kind of missing him at the Philippines. Yeah, it's true. That is a very powerful thing when you can get an audience involved that way. I think about that when I perform. I have all these great songs that I love to sing, songs sort of like that that are very intimate and very narrative, but don't necessarily have an opportunity for the audience to sing. And I'm always aware of like trying to keep those interspersed in the program because it is it is such a critical thing in any performance. I feel like, and the best concerts for me are when you get an audience that responds to that and is willing to kind of participate. You know, Pete was great in doing it and getting a much wider range of people to do it. Some audiences respond to that more readily, you know. But it is a great thing as a performer when you have that response from the audience and that connection. Welcome to Mount Airy. Enjoy the fair. Thanks. My name is Michelle Zipkin. I live in West Philadelphia and I grew up not far from there in Wynwood okay. on the main line. Mm-hmm. I'm a freelance writer. I also edit podcasts. And I actually worked on a podcast created by a musicologist who lives in Germantown, Guy Ramsey. It's called Musicology with a Q. It's basically interviews with local musicians. I learned about musicians I never knew existed here in Philly. He talked with the Shane Frederick, a young lady who goes by Limo. I also talked to Yolanda Wisher, the former poet laureate and a Germantown native or resident, I believe. So yeah, that's one of the things. And the thing I do right now um, with a theater aficionado and creator of Nightcap Cabaret in Philly. Her name is Anne-Marie Scalise, and um, she's the host of Theater with a T, which I produce as well. And what is that one about? That is interviews with local people involved in theater who are everything but actors. So composers, stage managers, I kind of runs the gambit. And we just started in May. We have about six episodes. What was the most interesting one, do you think? Probably the episode with a young lady named Christina May. Okay. They talked about theater and race and kind of brought it all back to like the arts being the foundational building block of uh, addressing like homelessness and, and poverty and things like that. Um, you know, the arts being kind of that bedrock that keeps people motivated and inspired. Yeah. What do you like about producing? I think on the technical side, I like making things sound as good as possible, kind of Frankensteining together a conversation, tricks that I learned like at XPN or at school of making things sound natural where they're anything but because I'm pulling all these little stops out behind the scenes. Well, thanks so much for uh, for talking. Yeah, thank you. My name is Jan Alter. I was born in Philadelphia, raised in Philadelphia, and became a public school teacher in Philadelphia and taught for 38 and a half years before I retired. I taught in North Philadelphia for 18 of those 38 years, and relatives kept asking me when I was going to transfer. And I said, I really feel like North Philadelphia may be my calling. But at one point after 18 years, I did transfer up to Omni and taught in an elementary school and was invited by the principal at one point to become the MG, or Mentally Gifted Teacher, and follow the Odyssey of the Mind program. 
which was an international event that would challenge kids to compete against each other to solve problems. Well, that became one of the highlights of my teaching career because when the kids learned of the challenges that they were going to do, they became truly inspired. And they decided they wanted to do the woodworking aspect of the project. What they had to do was use this very light wood. I can't remember the name of it. Balsa? Balsa wood, thank you. <laughs> needed that. And create a structure that would hold as much weight as possible. So literally on 28 grams or three ounces of balsa wood, they were able to hold a weight of over a thousand pounds. They were competing against other kids in the school district and they came in first, at which point they were invited to the state competition in Altoona, PA. And there they were competing against kids who had been literally brought up making balsa wood projects from the cradle. And they didn't win there, but they were thrilled to participate, and I was thrilled as well, because these kids were on their own solving issues which were quite amazing. And even though I've been retired now for 10 years, I still consider that one of the most exceptional times that I was teaching. Nice. Well, thanks so much for your story. My name is Patty Scooster, and I live on Wellesley Road across from the podcaster himself, (laughs) which is how I came to know about this wonderful podcast. Um, And I grew up in upstate New York in a teeny town called Norwich. And one thing that I'm proud to have created, I created a women's biking group in the Wissahickon, and we meet, and I'm looking at actually a map of Wissahickon Valley Park right on Rick's shirt, which is awesome. I could point out where we bike on the trails. So we bike every Saturday at 9 a.m., and it's been, there are two folks who mountain bike with us. The first mountain bike ride they came on was with us, and so it's women, femme, and trans, although it's mostly women right now. So anybody who's not cis male can come and bike with us. It's primarily intermediate-level folks, but beginners can come too. So How would somebody find out about it if they were interested? On Facebook, Women on Wheels in the Wissahickon. We have an Instagram account, too, and there's about between five and ten people show up every week. Yeah, it's really fun. And we have a beginner's ride occasionally. Today we had a kid's ride. Yeah, it's fun. And also I wanted to share that I'm really good at making soup. Soup? Yeah. What's uh, one of your specialties? Um, Gazpacho. Ah. It's still hot out, so I've been making a lot of gazpacho. And then um, I just cooked a pumpkin today, so I'm going to make some pumpkin soup later. What's a secret or two for people that want to get better at making soup? Um, I use cans of bouillon. If you were a purist, one might want to just boil bones or vegetables, um, but I usually put bouillon in and a lot of tasting is involved as you go along and adding and adjusting spices. I see. You have a daughter mm-hmm. who is nine. Yes. How does she like soup? Um, she has a limited palate, so she will eat broth. Yes. Broth. Yes. And so what's the soup yeah. that you would make to really, really grab her? 
Well, usually um, I can make a clear broth soup with a lot of vegetables, um, and she'll eat the broth. <laughs> and the bread that comes with the soup. So, yeah. Sounds familiar. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thanks so much. Yes. Thank you. That was fun. My name is Dan Vidal. I grew up in Mount Airy. I went to Houston School for elementary school, took the train to Masterman for middle school and high school. I recently moved back from uh, spending a few years living in Florida where I, I studied the kind of massage that I practice. So I'm, I'm a licensed massage therapist. I practice a specific kind of massage called neurosomatic therapy. Neuro meaning having to do with the mind and the nervous system, somatic meaning having to do with the body. I moved down to Florida to study this three years ago because I, I had my own issues that I was dealing with. I was working at an office job that was commuting an hour each way in traffic to a job that I hated, sitting at a desk all day. And then in the evenings I was getting my frustration and aggression out in the gym, lifting heavy weights. So the combination of those things, along with the fact that I have scoliosis, never really was painful and never really gave me any problems until that period of my life. I just kept getting worse and worse and I was just kind of looking for answers on the internet and I just stumbled across a YouTube video where they were interviewing what I would later find out to be the, the head of the school that I ended up going to called the Center for Neurosomatic Studies. So this man's name is Randy Clark. He runs the school. He's also a neurosomatic therapist. He was my mentor and he trained me. I had been looking for something like that and I had been really dissatisfied with going to chiropractors and getting what I thought was kind of the assembly line treatment. And this seemed like a very personalized therapy where they would tailor the treatment to the individual and their individual needs. And it just kind of clicked and I said, that's what I want to study. So I, I saved up money for a year. I moved down to Florida and enrolled in the school. And here I am. I'm a certified neurosomatic therapist. I'm a licensed massage therapist. And I just recently moved back in October to open up my own practice called Paragon Pain Solutions. Really excited to be able to bring this therapy to the neighborhood. This is a way of looking at pain treatment that really very few other people in the area do. I'm spending an hour of treatment time with each person and we're constantly communicating, we're constantly feeding each other. So it's really about getting people familiar with their bodies and getting them to sense what's going on in their bodies because if you're not aware of what's going on in your body, nothing is really going to be fixed for the long term. Everything else is just a band-aid. So this is really about empowering people to help themselves, um, which, is, um, which is what I did. And that's kind of what I thought when I got into this was that I would help myself and then I would be able to help other people. And uh, so I'm, I'm living that dream right now, and I'm proud to say that. Yeah, but I'm, I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, thank you. My name is Cherry Lane Avery Black. Okay. Cherry Black, like Black Cherry. Mm -hmm. I grew up on a farm in Kansas, mm -hmm. about 130 miles west of Kansas City, in the middle of Bible Belt, Republican, conservative, tornado land, right? On a beautiful farm that much later the government confiscated and made a big military reservation. 40 miles each way from our beautiful growing up place. So that made me understand when I came to Philadelphia and at some point later worked for Temple University and understood from meeting community people why they weren't exactly enamored with Temple University because it kept expanding the neighborhoods and then urban renewal came and moved out a lot of communities but never fixed them up and they became drug houses and stuff. So anyway, I could connect from losing our beautiful farm. I went to Kansas State University in journalism. A new professor there told me about mental health journalism at Syracuse that was federally funded. So I went to there. I have met a guy from the Philadelphia area and we moved to Philadelphia. 
the Office of Mental Health for the city had just started, so I was perfect for it. So I worked there 23 years, became Deputy Director of Mental Health, and then thought, oh, I will move to a university where it's not so much bureaucracy. However, I found out that's not true. <laughs> Naive me all along the way. But we developed a multicultural training and research institute, and so I directed that for about 20 years. I was very interested in culture, differences and similarities, so I had gathered a bigger and bigger network of friends from different cultures, and uh, I moved into Mount Airy December 1971. Still have our house here, just two blocks away. So that was what I was doing for those 40 years. When I was 33, I got divorced from my husband. Good man, but it wasn't working. And I remember talking with friends about what we wanted to do when we retired. And I said, without any conscious thought, I said, I'm going to have a bed and breakfast in Jamaica. And I shocked myself because I really, truly didn't know where Jamaica was. I knew it was in the Caribbean. So I didn't consciously take steps for that because I was just 33. When I was 48, a new girlfriend who knew Jamaicans took me to Jamaica. I got on the beach in Montego Bay, and within a half an hour, uh, a spirit told me that I should go to the countryside. So she and some friends took me out about 10 miles outside of Montego Bay, a town called Lottery, or Lottery in English. We chatted with some townspeople. A guy walked up to me. We chatted for 15 minutes, and I noticed we were calling each other husband and wife. Yes. And I thought, well, how about that? So he was very, very below poor. He was raising two little boys by himself. And we just had a solid bond that was unbreakable. There was no getting out of it. And I came back up to the States. I felt like ripping my arms off. All my friends who were multicultural friends said, you have lost your mind. This man surely is just using you to get to the United States. I said, no, he's Rastafari. The United States is the epitome of Babylon for him. Godless evil. He doesn't want to come, but this is where I knew how to make money. I didn't know how to make money there, and I didn't want to be poor. So he came up. We brought his two boys. They were six and eight. Now they're 28 and 30, and they live right here in in the same house, right up the street. So on our 10th anniversary, My husband actually apprenticed in home remodeling and got quite skilled in it. My husband's 14 years younger. He's brought me such riches and now I'm almost 73. Our kids are grown up. We moved down to Jamaica finally when I learned about Airbnb. Actually in 2006, we found a half-built guest house in Montego Bay and then my husband and a contractor friend that we just happened to meet built the rest of the house. So now, we've been having the guest house. We opened it two years ago. We've had over 200 guests from all over the world. I used to love traveling, and now they travel to me, and I love meeting people. A lot of times they choose our place because of the stories that I'm telling, that I tell on there. The other part of my story is in 2012, All of a sudden, I got diagnosed with stage 4 cancer from my uterus, all over my lungs, and into my liver a little bit. So I did 15 things. I started meditating, living in gratitude, eating only whole food-based food, 
drinking good water, sleeping more instead of being a workaholic all the time, more movement, more exercise. And this is the truth. In less than three months, the cancer was undetectable. I wrote a chapter in a book called Pathways to Vibrant Health and Well-Being by 40 women that went through trauma and triumph. That was the Amazon bestseller. So three years ago, my friend from Grenada, she said, you've got to write a book about your story. And so I have in my hand a copy, the first copy of my book. It's called Loving to Be We in uh, Jamaican Patois. They don't have an us, they, it's all we. Otherwise, I'd be loving to be us, but it's loving to be we. So I just got the book. It's very inspirational and motivational, and there's a lot of cross-cultural experiences in there because growing up in Kansas and Philadelphia is very different than Jamaica. So I feel like I'm living a dream world. I said that to a friend. He says, but that's your real world. I'm like, yes. All right. There's it in a nutshell. <laughs> Thanks so much for telling your story. So there it is, a day at the fair. Thanks so much to all the guests for telling their stories with such good heart and humor. If you're curious to know more, the show notes have links for some of the guests and their projects. Or go to our website, nwphillypodcast.net. If you like the show, please subscribe and tell your friends. And if you want to hear about new episodes every two weeks, just hit the like button on our Facebook page. I'm Rick Moore. Thanks for listening. See you next time for more stories from Northwest Philly Neighbors.